Genesis 46. I would like to share with you a time of great personal angst for me. And that time was when I was engaged to be married with Raylin. And I was tasked with the job of deciding what pots and pans we were supposed to register for. This uh, became my mission and my task, and I embraced this mission with every part of myself. And so I set out to find the perfect set of pots and pans for our needs and our stage of life. And this led me down a pretty significant rabbit hole because there are lots of pots and pans out there and lots of opinions about pots and pans out there. So I spent hours and hours and hours reading Amazon reviews and looking at consumer reports, reading blogs and forums about what the best set of pots and pans were. I tracked down a chef that I know and asked her what set of pots and pans I should get. And I took this very, very seriously. So seriously that as I look back on that time, I find myself very concerned about myself. But the thing is, is I have talked to enough of you to know that this is not what I do. This is what many of us do. We live in the Yelp generation. We live in a day and age where we cannot decide where to eat dinner without a stranger on the internet weighing in. We, we need expert opinions on what Disney package we should Buy. We need Amazon reviews to tell us what set of towels we should buy. You know, one time I, I, I went to multiple websites and looked at multiple blogs to tell me if the Costco or Sam's Club food court was better. It's just what we do, right? What, what drives this sort of thing in us? Why would we go to such great lengths to make really mundane decisions? Why do we need so much input and feedback and reviews? Well, I think one of the, the huge reasons is because we are a fearful people. We're a fearful people. I can't speak to everyone, but at least for me, I think that I am afraid of finding out later that there was a better set of pots and pans that I could have gotten or a better hot dog that I could have eaten. Fear of future, fear of the unknown, fear of not overanalyzing all the nuanced possibilities that are out there, this sort of fear stifles us. And this happens in basic, mundane, no big deal sorts of ways, like what are we going to eat? But... What about the big stuff? What about the, the real stuff of this life? What about when we as Christians seek to live Christ-exalting, God-glorifying lives that lead us to the unknown, to make hard decisions, to hard conversations? Their fear can be particularly intense. Fear can become acute. Today, we're going to be spending our time in Genesis 46. And as we do so, we're going to see a command be given to Jacob. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. 
do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. This command becomes a biblical principle for the people of God. We see this sort of thing repeated over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. Do not be afraid. And so, as we consider how God moves his redemptive plan forward through Genesis 46, we're going to see God saying something to his people for all time about fear and how the people of God are to relate to fear. At the heart of this passage, what we'll see is that the character of God is the foundation for a fearless life. The character of God is the foundation for a fearless life. That's what we want to see in this morning. We're going to see two points as we dive into Genesis 46. And I want to pray that the Lord would help us to see these things from his word. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you this morning, Lord. Uh, we bring so many things into this room. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. And that you would cause us to behold your glory in the face of Christ. Help us, Lord. Open our eyes. Unstop our ears. Uh, we offer you this time as an act of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, first thing we want to see from God's word is that we live in a scary world. A scary place. A place full of terror even. Genesis 46, verses 1 through about 3 and a half. If you read with me. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So before we can think about how we can be not afraid, we need to recognize the plain reality that we live in a fearful and scary world. Jacob felt this truth, I believe. And we see that in these verses. What's happening in Genesis 46? Well, Genesis 45, if you remember back from last week, ends with Joseph's brothers returning to Jacob, their father, and they have this really great news. Joseph is still alive. He's alive. And so the end of Genesis 45 tells us that this changed everything for Jacob. His heart, his spirit, his soul, they were downcast, but this revived him. It changed him. And what was the result? Well, he's ready to go. He wants to go to his son, Joseph. Just try to imagine being in that situation where you believe for years and years and years that your beloved son has died violently. And now you get the news, the undeniable fact that he is alive. Can you begin to imagine how that would affect you? I would be shot out of a cannon. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, that's where my mind goes to. The father seeing his son from afar and sprinting to him. Well, we see that sort of frenzy here at Genesis 46. The action moves very quickly. And the next thing we know, Jacob has packed up everything and he heads out for Egypt. Not a lot of space given to preparations. No, he is out the door. But they go to Egypt 
via Beersheba. And this is significant for a few reasons. First, Beersheba is at the southern border of Israel. It's the the last town before you are heading out into Egypt, into a foreign land. Once you go past there, you're effectively in a foreign land. Also, though, this place played a big role in Jacob's father's life and in his grandfather's life. Uh, Both Isaac and Abraham at different stages of their life lived in Beersheba. And not only that, in Beersheba, God showed up and spoke to both Isaac and Abraham in really significant ways. God worked powerfully in Beersheba before and he will work powerfully again. But before God shows up and speaks to Jacob, Jacob becomes afraid. I, I think this is implicit in the very command, do not be afraid. Why would God command Jacob not to be afraid if he, in fact, wasn't afraid? No, something has changed in him. The reality is is that despite the good news that he had received, despite how desperately he wants to see his son and the zeal that is driving him to embrace his son once again, he becomes troubled. His soul seems to be stirring. He becomes afraid. Why? Jacob has good reason to be afraid. Once again, we live in a fearful and a scary world. And that was true of Jacob as well. A few reasons why Jacob might be afraid. Two explicit from the text, two inferred reasons. First, Jacob is old. Jacob is old. If we were to skip forward a little bit to when Jacob actually goes on this, uh, when he actually begins to travel to Egypt, we see that he's not walking to Egypt. He's not riding to Egypt. No, he has to literally be carried by his family to Egypt. And it's because he's old, because he's frail, because he is not able like he once was. And so can you imagine getting this great news that your son is in fact alive and you head out to see him, but your body is not able to make the journey and so you die along the way? Jacob is scared. Second, in his zeal, and desire to be hospitable, I'm sure, Jacob ignored Pharaoh's commands and he didn't leave behind food. He didn't leave behind grain and sheep and livestock. No, verse one tells us that Jacob took all that he had to Egypt. This point is reinforced in verses five and seven. If we go and look at those verses, we see that Jacob took all, he took all, he took all. He took everything that he had down to Egypt. He took everything that that constituted Israel except for the land itself. There wasn't an animal or a person left behind. And so this means that if something happens to one person, then it is likely to happen to all of Israel, and therefore put all of Israel at risk. So there are practical reasons for Jacob to be troubled and afraid on the doorstep of Egypt. But I think two other reasons as well. I have to imagine that Jacob was aware of what God had said to his father Isaac. If we go all the way back to Genesis 26, God makes it clear when speaking to Isaac, he says, do not go down to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. Well, here we have Jacob and he's about to go down to Egypt. 
albeit for seemingly good reasons. He's about to take everything that makes up Israel and take it into the, the, the mouth of the beast, into a foreign land. Does this honor God? Is this a selfish decision? Do God's commands to his father hold where he is concerned? It's hard to say. And finally, Genesis 15 looms in the background of this entire passage. Genesis 15, 13, God shows up to Abraham and he says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. We don't know for sure that Isaac is thinking of these words, but scholars seem to pretty much agree that he was. What was waiting for him and his family in Egypt, in this foreign land? Was it servitude? Was it slavery? Was it being in bondage and having to experience hardship for 400 years? Jacob had a lot to be scared of. This all reminds me of moving out to California. I moved out here about 10 years ago from Birmingham, Alabama. And without a doubt, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. So much good has come from it. And I've seen God's hand upon that move in a way that has just blown me away. But as good of a decision as this was, it was also one of the scariest decisions I've ever made in my life. On one hand, I dreamed of living in California for a good chunk of my life. I, I dreamed of the beaches and I dreamed of the adventure and all that California could provide and offer and the types of people that I might encounter. It was this, this really great and grand place in my mind. And not only that, but I literally used to go to bed at night dreaming of meeting my future wife at a bonfire on the beach, which coincidentally is where I met Ray Lynn at a beach bonfire at Huntington Beach. So that's cool. So there were good things, but at the same time, California pretty much represented everything that was scary to me. It meant leaving my family behind, my friends, my culture, my way of doing things, safety, things that were good and right. And not only that, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but California doesn't necessarily have the best reputation outside of this state. So I had two very distinct groups coming to me. And they were concerned as they heard about my plans to move to California. One group came and they were very concerned that I would return a liberal. <laughs> and the other group was concerned that I would be mugged on the streets. So I had these people coming and filling my head as well about the, the dangers of moving across the country. And still, I knew that my rationale for moving out here was one that I think honored the Lord. I wanted to learn the Bible and learn how to teach the Bible and figure out how to do vocational ministry and Talbot provided an opportunity to do that in a cool place. And so I had, I think, good rationale and yet I was conflicted. The decision I made wasn't ultimately one of conviction and being sure. It was one that I made with fear and trembling. This is what happens in our lives. We are faced with decisions that need to be made. And as Christians, we live for God's glory and his renown. We have been bought. And so we live to ensure that Jesus is worshiped where we are and in all the earth. 
And so we go and make disciples of all nations as best as we possibly can. And as we do this, this leads us to crossroads. This leads us to consider staying in a job or moving on from a job, going to this school or going to the other school. It may lead us to consider serving in a cross-cultural context as a missionary. Will we take the troubled youth into our house? Will we give up family and rest time on Friday afternoons to serve in the food bank? Will we run the risk of being that guy or that girl at our workplace or at our schools for proclaiming Christ? I recently talked to a friend who felt compelled to give a self-sacrificial and generous amount of money to his church. And in doing this, it required a great amount of faith. It was scary. All of this stuff is scary. It's fearful. To live for Christ is to put ourselves in the way of uncertainty and fear. Living a gospel-centered life is easier said than done. This sort of gospel-centered Jesus as Lord of our life means that we are going to have to make hard decisions along the way regarding our futures, regarding our spouses, our children, our health, our finances, and every single sphere of our lives, for God is Lord of them all. So what do we do with this? What did Jacob do? Jacob sought the Lord. He sought the Lord. Verse 1 says that in Beersheba, the gateway to Egypt, Jacob made a sacrifice to the Lord. Probably as thanks for the Lord preserving his beloved son Joseph, but also surely as a means of discernment. Lord, are you pleased with what I'm doing right now? Are you good with this? Because I think I have good motivations, but I am not sure. Lord, what do you think? I love this. This is so contrary to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. I remember preaching on Abraham and Sarah, sojourning in Egypt several months back. And and one of the main things that we considered in that time was that Abraham acted without reference to God. Here, his son does better. Abraham refused to seek the Lord's will, refused to seek the Lord's purposes. He had his own safety in mind, and so his wife ended up in the harem of Pharaoh as a result. His grandson, though, says, no, I will seek the Lord's face. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. This seems like a good and wise thing to do, but I don't know. What should I do, O Lord? In verse 2, and God spoke to Israel. God hadn't spoke like this in at least 20 something years, but now in the midst of his fear, God speaks to Israel after Israel seeks after God. So what do we do? I think we do the exact same thing. We live in a fearful and messed up world. It's not the exact same world as Jacob, but surely the scary things of this world abound, right? And so what do we do? We seek God, not by making sacrifices, but we seek him in prayer. We seek him in the word. We seek him in the assembly. We seek his face and we ask for help and we ask him to guide us by his spirit. We act with reference to God by taking our plans and our desires to him and laying them at his feet. 
It strikes me that we have two incredibly practical ways that we can do that here in our faith family. One is happening next service. You can stick around for an extra hour and 15 minutes and gather together with your faith family, with the people of God, and go to house of prayer and make your request known to the Lord. Pour yourself out and ask for the Lord's help. That happens the second Sunday of every month, and it happens up in the youth room. You can go to that today. But also, just next weekend, we're going to be gathering here together for a Bible conference where we're going to consider the Lord's Prayer. And the whole idea of this is that we want to learn how to pray by sitting at Jesus' feet. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to zealously seek your face. Well, we're going to have a whole bunch of sessions and, and, and a lot of cool things happening next weekend on this campus that you can come to and you can actually grow in this and be blessed as you do so. And so avail yourselves to these opportunities. In the midst of Jacob's fear and anxiety, he sought the Lord and God shows up. And we know that God tells Jacob not to fear as he shows up, but the question now becomes how does he, or how is he supposed to do this? How is he to be fearless? How can we be fearless? What is our fearlessness grounded in? It's the next point. The character of God enables us to live fearlessly. The character of God enables us to live fearlessly. Genesis 46, verses 3 and 4. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God shows up. Jacob is fearful. He's overwhelmed. He's unsure. And God speaks. And what is the content of God's message? What does he point Jacob to? He points to himself. I am God. I'm the God of your father. You know me. We're in a relationship. We have a covenant bond together that was established with your grandfather, with your father, and now carries on to you. Look to me. God tells Jacob to not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? Because God's character will hold in the midst of the journey. The God who has always been will not waver. He will not sway. He will be exactly who he has been. So what's the antidote for fear in this passage? What's the secret to living fearlessly? Well, it's not seeing the world as any less scary or seeing our problems as any less nuanced or complicated. It's not looking inside of ourselves and seeing something different about ourselves. No, it has everything to do with God and seeing God rightly for who he is. Verse three, God says for Jacob not to be afraid. Or in verses three and four, or in verse three, he says, do not be afraid. And then in verses three and four, we have four reasons why Jacob is to not be afraid. One, for there I will make you into a great nation. 
Two, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. Three, I will also bring you up again. And four, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So much could be said about these four whys. In these, though, I want us to see three aspects of God's character on display. Three aspects of God's character that we can cling to. First, God keeps and expands his promises. God keeps and expands his promises. So look at this first reason God gives for Jacob not to be afraid. In Egypt, I will make you a great nation. We've seen this thing before, so the significance might be lost on us. It might be seen to be old hat, but this is profound. What's happening is God is coming along and he's reiterating his covenant promises made to Abraham and Isaac before Jacob. And now God has told Jacob's forefathers that he will make them into a great nation. And he's saying, I will do that with you. Nothing has changed. God hasn't changed his mind. It doesn't matter that Jacob's children have acted foolishly. It doesn't matter that Jacob swindled and cheated so many times. God's promise holds. God will make Jacob and therefore he will make Abraham and Isaac into a great nation. Promise reiterated. God keeps his promises, but he also expands upon his promise. Up until this point, the assumption has been that God will build Israel into a great nation within the boundaries of Israel. Here, however, God reveals where he will make Israel into a great nation. God is going to build his people up, not in the relative safety and comfort of their homeland, but as sojourners and aliens in a foreign land. God is going to do this in Egypt. God keeps his promises. Of course, we know that this promise was kept in Egypt, and we know that the where this eventually and ultimately led was to the coming of Christ who went to the cross to die for us. And so now Jesus stands as the sure uh, promise, the, the great assurance that God does in fact keep his promises. But here's the thing. There will be times where we will go down into a type of Egypt where we will go into a fearful and a scary place. In fact, I believe you could accurately say that where we are in this current church age is a type of Egypt. God's promise holds in our Egypt. So as we face the scary situations of our lives, the potential moves, the hard and needed conversations, the evangelism opportunities, the forays into adoption or foster care, then we can know that God's promise holds in Egypt. God's promise holds in Egypt, and it's in Egypt, that's where God is going to build his people into a great nation. That's what happened with Israel, and that is what is currently happening with us. It's through our Egypt experiences, the scary and the unknown, that God is going to form us into a holy people for his possession. That's God's promise to us today. God will form you, and so often he will form you into the people that he called you to be through the scary, the hard, and the unknown, through the Egypts. And so, as you encounter these things, as you experience 
the, the difficulty of living for Christ in this life, and you experience Egypt, take heart and hold on. For God's promise holds. Second aspect of God's character we want to see is that God is a God who rescues. God is a God who rescues. In verse 4, we see three reasons why Jacob shouldn't be afraid. Focus on the first two for a second. I will go with you into Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. Can you imagine how this would encourage Jacob? God is with him. He's assured Jacob of this before, and here he tells Jacob that I will enter into the scary place with you. When, when Henry becomes afraid in the middle of the night, and he's scared of the dark, I don't pat him on the back and say, get in there, bud, you'll do great, good luck. No, as his father who loves him, I go into the dark with him. I'm present with him in the midst of that. This is what God does. He doesn't pat us on the back and say, good luck as we enter into the fearful and unknown. He goes with us, just like he went with Jacob before. But he doesn't just go with Jacob into Egypt. He promises rescue. No matter what happens, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. You will not be abandoned to that place. I myself will rescue. I will redeem you. I will save you. God was faithful to keep this promise. This points us forward to the Exodus. Where after building Israel into this great nation, God does indeed rescue his people from uh, from Egypt and send them on their way to the promised land. He was faithful to bring them out from the dreadful and scary place. And this to me sounds a little bit like gospel language. I think it's appropriate for this to drive us to Jesus. This is how God acted in the Old Testament. This is how God acts for all time. He goes with his people to Egypt. He lets them be formed in Egypt and then he redeems them from that dreadful place. God did this supremely at the cross where Jesus saved us from the terror of our sin and our shame. But God is now actively at work in a similar way for his church. He goes with us into the terror of this life and we can be absolutely sure that one day he will rescue us out. He will bring us out of this current Egypt and he will bring us to himself to experience unmitigated fellowship and communion with him for all time. Here's how Matthew Henry puts it. Whatever low or darksome valley we are called into at any time, we may be confident. If God go down with us into it, then he will surely bring us up again. If he go with us down to death, he will surely bring us up again. God is a God who rescues. Third aspect of God's character, God is kind. Finally, God is kind. God's kindness is all throughout Genesis 46. The mere fact that God showed up and spoke to Jacob at all is his steadfast, loving kindness. It is grace. But we see it explicitly in verse 4. Joseph's hand will close your eyes. Joseph's hand will close your eyes. Remember 
the, the fear that Jacob experienced of, of dying along the way and not actually being able to see his beloved son, Joseph? Will Jacob be robbed of this sweet reunion in his old age? No, he won't. Joseph will be there. They will see one another again. Not only that, but Joseph will be there to play the the role of honor in one day closing his dad's eyes at death. And we see the fulfillment of this just a few verses later in Genesis 46, verses 29 and 30. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I wonder what that good while was like. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and you are still alive. This is the kindness of the Lord. Jacob is in fact reunited with his beloved son. He will go on to live another 17 years and be able to experience that 17 years with the sure knowledge that his beloved son is okay. This is unbelievable. And it shows us what kind of God we have. He didn't promise that, that everything would work out just fine and dandy for Jacob. Nevertheless, his kindness is exhibited in that he gives these sorts of gifts to his children. God doesn't always give us exactly what we want, but he has a way of cheering our hearts in season. He has a way of causing the, the darkness to dissipate in season, to lift the fog in season and to cheer our hearts. You may not be there right now, Maybe that's not how you're experiencing the world, but I think it nearly a rule that you can find hope in the fact that God is an overtly and radically kind God. So what do we do with all of this? Once again, many of us know, some of us especially well, the fear and the dread of this world and the the unique fear and dread that can come as we try to seek after the Lord and his purposes. We know that to live for Christ is to put ourselves in the way of fearful and difficult things. So what do we do? How do we endure? How do we not break down as we go throughout this life? I think Genesis 46 instructs us in two ways. First, we've already covered. We seek the Lord. We seek his face. And I think the most obvious way we do this is is in prayer and the word and gathering together, but, but really primarily prayer. This should reinforce God's character. As we seek God out, his character should be reinforced. It should put his splendor and his holiness before us. And then what? Then what do we do as we glimpse God's character? As we see his glory and his holiness and his splendor revealed, whether that be through prayer or through time in the word or gathering together like we are today, when we see his goodness and grace, what do we do? I think verse five puts it well. Then Jacob set out. Then Jacob set out. What do we do? We act by faith. Putting our trust in the steadfast character of God, we set out in faith. This is what Jacob did. And so in verses five through seven, we see that Jacob set out and he took everything that he had. He took all of his livestock. He took all of his children. He took everything that constituted Israel and he took it down into Egypt. 
He didn't make uh, a plan to make sure that everybody was protected. He didn't leave some behind. He wasn't shrewd. He took God at his word and he went. We see this lived out in in an especially significant way in this big genealogy that comes in chapter 46. If we were to keep going, we'd see this genealogy or family list. And ultimately what it does is it documents all of the people that traveled with Jacob down to Egypt. It says 66 people were a part of that party. Verse 26 goes on to say, or verse 27 goes on to say that there were 70 people total in Jacob's family. And so this does two things. One, it it goes to reinforce that God is faithful to his promises. God promised that he would make Jacob into a great nation. And to have 70 people in your family, which is a beautiful and perfect number in Hebrew literature, this is something that should astound us as we consider where Jacob's family was 20 years ago. But it also shows us how Jacob is acting in faith. He took everybody. No contingency plan. He took everybody. He sought to be faithful to his Lord. He he took God at his word and he steered into his fear. And we don't get an indication that Jacob's fear dissipated that he all of of a sudden became a bold and courageous lion-like person. But what we do see is Jacob respond in faith. And this, I believe, is the call for us today. This is one of those passages that gives us something to believe. Sometimes the Bible gives us information to know. Sometimes it gives us commands to obey. Sometimes it gives us promises or aspects of God's character to believe. And I think that's where we are today. This is a passage where we have God's character reinforced and the biblical principle put forward to not be afraid. What do we do? We seek to believe God and allow his character to compel us to steer into those scary things that we might face, especially those scary things that we might face as a result of living with Jesus as Lord. The reality is this. If we fail to know and believe the character of God, then we will be dominated by fear. If we fail to know and believe the character of God, then we will be dominated by fear. But if we know and cling to the character of God, we will be set up as best as possible to live fearlessly in the midst of a scary world. This is God's desire for us. Of course, we will struggle with this. Our minds our circumstances, and even Satan himself are working against us to cause us to be a fearful people. And so we will falter, we will fail, but Jesus stands ready to save us. And Jesus stands ready to help us in our time of need. And so we have so much assurance that we can rest easy in the Lord's hands. And we know that even though everything would stand against us, God in his purity and his perfection stands above these things. So this morning, I think God is beckoning us to see his holy and awesome character. And then he's asking us to trust him. Believe in me. Believe in me. Trust him with our circumstances. Trust him with our decisions. Trust him with whatever it may be that causes us to fear.
steer into the Lord. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to do this. Father, we thank you for your unending grace towards us. We thank you that you are a good and faithful and glorious God and that we can trust you in the midst of this scary world. And so, Father, as we uh, become overwhelmed or burdened by those scary things that exist in this world, especially those scary things that we might experience as a result of our trusting hard and following after you, Lord, I pray that you would supply your grace uh, so that we could endure, so that we can cling to Jesus as our hope and as our stay. Lord, as this happens, I pray that you would compel us to live happy and holy lives, uh, lives where we experience your grace and participate in what you are doing in this world to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.